I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. Yeah, I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told. So I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. You're listening to The Leaf Report with Canadian Press National Hockey writer Jonas Siegel and The Globe and Mail's James Myrtle. Okay, James, we are recording. I think we're recording. So I'm just going to get it right into it because you're trying to look at the topics, which I actually do, we do discuss, but one of these I want to get to right away since you were trying to sneak a, a peek at what one of the topics was going to be. Okay, Mitch Marner is at, I think, what is it, 15 points? No, 16 points in 18 games. So my question for you is over under 60 points for Mitch Marner for the year. I'm going to say like 62. I'm going to go with I'm going to go with the over. And I wouldn't be I I think Matthews is going to get over 60 as well. So it'd be interesting to see where um some of the other guys. They've got a whole bunch of it's all kind of bunched up who their scores are. So I think like JVR could be there. The question for me is how high scoring a team are the Leafs going to finish the season at? Because they're at what, like 3.2? I mean, I'm sure it dropped after the Montreal game, and I haven't looked since then, but they're at like 3.1, 3.2 goals per game. Their shooting percentage is a bit high, around 10%, um, which sometimes a team can sustain that. I'm not sure if the Leafs are going to. So let's say, like, for the sake of argument, they finish at like 2.9 goals per game. Some of those guys' totals will come down a little bit, but they'll probably have two or three guys that get to the 60 point mark. And I think Marner, yeah, is probably going to be one of those guys. 
I'd say he's right around there. Like I would push or, or say maybe slightly over. Like he's on pace. I don't know. You know, you do the math. It's over. I think it's over sixty points for what he's on pace for right now. And I think it's interesting, like just to look at what the projections are based on a full year for a lot of these guys. Like Van Riemsdyk, I wanted to ask you about as well. He's on pace right now for thirty-seven goals, seventy-eight points. Matthews, who you know hasn't scored, I think now in twelve games, has been quiet. Still on pace for 60 points. And 60 points for a rookie center is good. You know, Jack Eichel, I don't think, hit 60 points last year. Uh, Artemi Panarin was kind of an exception, obviously playing with Kane. But 60 points would be a nice year for Austin Matthews. So if you look at those two other guys, Van Riemsdyk and Matthews, which do you think is more likely, that, that Matthews tops 60 points or that Van Riemsdyk actually gets close to, I don't know, 40 goals and maybe 80 points. No, there's no way. No, Van Riemsdyk isn't a 40-goal, 80-point guy. I mean, this is just, like, I think in the last podcast we were talking about JVR looked a little bit like not himself. Like, last he wasn't didn't look like the guy last year that was a dominant first line. And then all of a sudden he goes on that run. He has, what do you have, a three-point game. There have been all these multi-point games for these guys recently because they had all those home games where they scored six goals and they piled up the points. And I think this is just like, the ebbs and flows of who's producing offense. And in the beginning of the year, it was like, wow, look at Matthews and look at Nylander. And then in this like next 10 game stretch, it's been, wow, look at Marner and look at JVR. And some of it's shooting percentage. Some of it is like, I think Matthews has played well. I think he's played pretty well. And that, that's one of the things that uh, Mark Masters was talking to uh, Matthews today about uh, after practice, sort of, you know, like all of the other stats around Matthews, like the, the uh, uh, scoring chances and possession and all that stuff. It all looks really good. And Mike Babcock's talked a lot about how they're working on him with his defensive game. And, you know, I think I, I, I'm almost certain the points are going to come for Matthews. Like if you project out how many shots a game he's getting and a, like a reasonable shooting percentage, he's going to get at least 30 goals. And I think that I mean, I mean, the tough thing, he's playing with Zach Hyman, and he hasn't always been with Nylander, so maybe he's not going to have two great finishers on his wing. You know, maybe he has like 32 goals and only 25 assists. You know, you look at where he's played before, and sometimes he's had more goals and assists. So he's, he's really a shooter. So, you know, maybe he doesn't get to 60 points, but I feel almost certain that he's going to get 30 goals, even though he's in a huge drought right now. Well, it's interesting, today's day and age almost – not almost, it helps him. Like, because there are these other numbers that you can look to and say he's actually doing good things. And obviously, if you watch the games, you can see he's having an impact on the game. He's creating scoring chances. Van Riemsdyk's really interesting. Like, I don't actually think he's going to get 40 goals and 80 points. But you look at his season so far, he's leading the team in scoring. He's, you know, amongst the top 25, I think, in league scoring. I don't know that I'd say he's had, like, this great year. Like, he's had this massively impactful year. He's a and and that makes him kind of an interesting guy to like project as to what he is and what he's going to be and where he is and kind of their plans. He's got one more year after this on his contract, obviously a really reasonable contract. Do you think he's part of like their long-term build or does his age, I think he's 27, does that kind of disqualify him in your mind? from being like a long-term puzzle piece. Like when he comes up, let's assume they don't trade him. Do you re-sign him? I think you got to do one or the other. I think you got to decide either he's like part of the future or he's not because, and then you, because then you get something for him, right? Especially if 
you trade him with a year left on his deal, I think you could probably get more for him than I I would look at what his value is around the league. You know, the good thing for them is if he is hot and he does have a ton of points, his value is probably going up among teams that don't really look at. I mean, let's face it, that line is not a great possession line, and it never has been. And I think that it's because of Bozak and JVR more than Marner. I think you put Marner with Matthews, and then that's going to be a great possession line, and they're going to have a puck a lot of the the puck a lot of the time. So I look at moving JVR if you can get the defenseman that this team needs. I mean, this team needs like – it needs probably a number one, maybe a number two, and even a number three would probably help given what they've got. So it'd be interesting to see what JVR's value is. It's not like he's old. He's just not young anymore. I mean, I think there's room on this team. You don't want just like everybody has to be super young. They got to have like some veteran guys. I like his personality. I like the way that he fits in, but he probably tops out as a second line left winger and he could get a lot of money. I mean, you look at the money that like Ocposo and some of those guys got and JVR certainly could do that. And I could see him wanting to go closer to home. I could see him wanting to go, I don't know, play for the devils or something like that. Or I think he said he grew up a Rangers fan. Maybe he wants to go play somewhere like that. So, you know, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what they do with him, but I think he's one of, he's one of the options they have if they want to make a trade because they've got a lot of forward depth. If you include the Marlies, so I think eventually what they should do is trade some of that forward depth for help on defense. Well, you bring up a good point. And as you were talking, I was thinking of teams that have like not excess defensemen, but obviously have really good defense cores. Like I, I was thinking Minnesota, I was thinking Anaheim, like two teams that could use, you know, a, a player like James Van Riemsdyk who have defense, but you're not going to get that number one defenseman for James Van Riemsdyk. And obviously we've seen that that's kind of like their long-term need. After Van Riemsdyk, because I think we probably both agree he's their most valuable trade chip. Who do you think is next? Like, who is the guy that they can? And 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 I, I think we're way too early to be looking ahead to the trade deadline, which I don't think is till March third or something like that. But in terms of like pieces that they can kind of dangle to get help where they need it, which is on defense, is it Komarov? Is it like I don't know who it is like. I'm trying to think off the top of my head who that might be. Is it Tyler Bozak, you know, who's got the same type of contract as Van Riemsdyk? Who do you see kind of being in that mix? Matt Martin. Do you know, I, I looked up his numbers today, That two points in 18 games. This is not going to be a good situation. But anyway, we'll talk about that after. Get back to the subject. I don't think they have a lot of guys that have a ton of trade value. I mean, I almost wonder if, like, if to get the really good defenseman that we're talking about they might have to move one of the guys the young guys that we really like you know maybe i mean i know no one's going to want to hear that on this right now but i mean you need to have a more balanced team the thing with moving jvr that i like is that he's going to hit a home run in the next contract he's getting older his performance isn't going to decline i think right now he tops out as a second line guy because you can't play him against tough opposition because he's not great along the boards he's not good defensively you know one of the Undertold stories of the Leafs season right now is that the Babcock's kind of grooming Matthews to take on tougher defensive matchups. He's using Kadri in the toughest defensive matchups, and he's kind of saying to JVR and Bozak and Marner, like, beat up on third lines as much as you can offensively, and they're doing it. And still, with the way that the game is covered, you know, they get the most attention just because of their offensive production. I think they're one, two, three in scoring on the team right now, right? But that's not necessarily 
why they're winning games. It's you, you, you need to have that balance now in the NHL. We saw it with Pittsburgh last year. You need to have at least three good lines, and ideally your fourth line is useful too. And that's where the Leafs are right now in terms of they've got three lines that can burn you at various times. And I, it's just, it's that. But, I mean, Bozak's a really interesting question too. I mean, does he have value if he puts up a lot of points? Maybe. Maybe a playoff team, because you only got one year left on his deal as, as well, right? And it's a pretty reasonable $4.2 million. Maybe a team looks at that and says, we can have a sheltered second line that's going to produce offense with this guy. You know, I think that where we are with Bozak right now is that he's probably better offensively than we thought. We thought that a lot of that was Kessel driving the bus and he's still weak defensively, but you can kind of mitigate that by, by sheltering the line a little bit. Yeah. You raise a lot of interesting points. And I think the, I think you're right on Bozak. You know, we thought for so long that he was being pulled up by Kessel, maybe smarter than we, we gave him credit for, you know, he's kind of crafty. He's fit well with Marner. But maybe long term, the obvious piece that you you move is Neander. Like obviously, it's he's still super young. Like it's it's. I don't think they would even consider it just because he is so young. Like you need to find out what he is and what he can be before you even consider that prospect. But long term, like if you're looking at your puzzle pieces and you're saying, okay, what can we get to improve the defense? He's the guy. Like he's. I don't know of the three rookies. He would be third on that pecking order. But to your point, another one that you raised, like go back to the game they play against Florida. They win 6-2. The big story is Connor Brown gets four points. But maybe the real story was that that line, Kadri, Komarov, Brown, keeps Barkov, Yager off the score sheet and scores three goals. That's the less sexy story because Connor Brown scores four points, blah, blah, blah. But like that's that's how you win. You know what I mean? Uh, are those the kind of things that maybe get lost when you have like all this skill all this talent like the job that Kadri does like he Kadri gets two points that game but is not the story I think Kadri's been great this year I mean I think the fact that I think last year he was kind of easing into that shutdown role and then now like what he's doing is he's essentially even with all of the least problems on D he's keeping that line at like 50, a little bit higher than 50% possession against the best players in the NHL every single night. And he's doing it with Komarov and why well, they've had Nylander on their, on their line sometimes, but most of the time it's been, it's been Brown. I mean, it's been a, it's been a young inexperienced guy. So Kadri has to do a lot of the really heavy lifting because he's playing against other teams, top centers. And I look at who they've got on D with them and it's, that's not an easy ask. And I think that's why the Leafs have looked so bad in some games against Tampa, against LA, uh, against Pittsburgh, they've just been overmatched in terms of that top matchup because, you know, I, and I think that Babcock sees this long term that at some point there's going to be a switch where Kadri goes back to facing second lines and Matthews gets those first lines. I just I don't know when when that's going to happen. I mean, maybe it's maybe it's Hyman Matthews uh, Marner that can take top line. I don't know what it is, but you know, or, or maybe it's Brown. Maybe maybe it's. Hyman Matthews Brown, which I think they've test driven a couple of times in recent games, but you're totally right. I mean, Kadri's been a really good story, and you look at that number he signed to on the contract, and it seems super, super reasonable right now. Well, he's on pace for 60 points, and as you were talking, I'm thinking, has he been their best player this year? Like when you think about the season in its entirety. Is it him? Is it Matthews? Is it Marner? Like, 
I think that, I think maybe one of the, the the more surprising stories is just how good Marner's been so quickly. Um, I don't know. Like, if you had to answer that question right now without thinking about it too much, who would come to mind? I mean, it's probably not the sexiest answer right now with how ineffective he's been in terms of producing, but I think Matthews is going to end the year. I mean, I'm still really high on Matthews. I love the way that he plays. I mean, there's not very often I see him make a mistake or really get burned defensively for a goal against or... But I think those are all good choices. I mean, those have to be the three top choices. Marner, Kadri, Matthews, and they're all in different lines. So I think that that's really interesting too. I do wonder though, um, like I was looking back at last season for, for Matthews. He played... 36 regular season games for Zurich and then obviously he played, you know, at the World Cup. I think he played he played he played at the Worlds, which is a bunch of games, but like we're talking, I don't know, 50 games, something like that. They're almost at 20 now. I wonder like at what point if at any like f- fatigue will set in if it hasn't like already. Like that was a busy fall where you go World Cup, bang bang bang, training camp, bunch of exhibition. You know what I mean? Like, I wonder if at some point that becomes a little bit of a barrier that he has to hop over. Well, and his summer was crazy as hell, too. Like, I mean, he did world championships, and I remember talking to his dad in, like, I want to say it was, like, late May or or mid-May for the story that that we did, and it was, like, he was, like, going through the schedule, like, when he was going to be able to see his son, and it was crazy. Like, he was all over the place. He was only back in Arizona to like hang out with his family and train it felt like for a couple of weeks all summer because the draft there's all that lead up they they take them to the Stanley Cup final games before that and I think that he didn't get much of a break in the summer he probably only got a couple of weeks and he didn't get like an NHL what Babcock calls an NHL summer in terms of training and working on strength and stuff like that so he he doesn't have the stamina I don't think and I think he has looked tired at times and I think that's part of what we're seeing and you know it's it's going to be hard for him to catch his breath in the middle of the year with the way this condensed schedule is. I can't remember. Did we talk about the condensed schedule of the last podcast? Like if you look at it, so normally an NHL season is 187 days. This one's 180 because they took it down for the World Cup. Plus they've got the bye week thrown in there. You pull all of those out. Uh, you know, you're you're looking at, they're playing like 3.2 games a week, which is, and normally it's more like 3 or 3.05. And it, it adds up. Like in a month, it means you're playing an extra you know, whatever, a game, game and a half. And, you know, the the NHL schedule, you know, because you traveled and you did all the games. I had a couple of years where I did, you know, 15, 20 road games. Like the schedule is really grueling with all the flying around and the back-to-backs. The Leafs have, I think they have 19 back-to-backs this year. It, I could see not just Matthews, but a lot of these young guys hitting a wall with how difficult the schedule is going to be. It's funny you mentioned that because as you were talking, I'm thinking about like the times that I did spend covering every single game. And this is just like a reporter covering the games, covering the morning skate, writing a story, you know, filing some audio and stuff. The feeling your body would have, like, so you would get on a plane after, I'm just thinking of a game, let's say they play in Minnesota. You go to the airport after the game, you fly wherever, let's say you fly to Atlanta, because at that point, Atlanta's still a team. You get in at 2 two o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, you get to the hotel, you get into bed by, I don't know, 3 uh, fall asleep by 3.30, and then you get up at, let's say, 9 because practice is at 11 or 12. Your body that next morning, I cannot tell you how crap you feel. Like, your body hurts. And I'm not, a, like, I wasn't playing. 
So, like, I'm, I'm trying to imagine what it would be like for some guy who just played 20 minutes of brutal, uh, like, physical beating, what their body must feel like, and then you practice, and then you fly, or then you play the, the next day, and then you fly, and then you play again. Like, your body just might probably never feels great. And I'm sure, like, for, like, a lot of these young guys, that's hard. And, like, that's going to be something, you're right, that they're going to have to plow through and obviously every rookie deals with it but I can just tell you from my perspective traveling was hard and like it it, it wasn't good on your body you always felt tired um, so that's a good point um, I wanted to ask you about Nikita Zaitsev uh, he played 26 minutes against Montreal led the team career high, career high. well I always am reluctant to use career high for guys who have played like 18 games but a career high He's playing a bunch. He's like third among all rookies in, in ice time. He's playing on their top pair. Has he been better than what you thought he was going to be, about what you thought he he's going to be, or worse than you thought he was going to be? I think he's been better. You know, I, I there was the one play where Crosby beat him out and banged him along the boards and took the puck and scored against him, and he didn't look very good in that game, but he's he's still learning. I mean, he hasn't he's never played against players that are that good, really, for that that, that much of his career, so... I think he looks like one of the least two best defensemen. And I was kind of, I think that they were going to win. I mean, they were going to win bringing him over if he was an NHL player because his contract is really not that substantial. But I was kind of thinking, even if he's like a number four defenseman, that's a really nice addition for the Leafs. That makes him better than almost every other Russian defenseman that's come over. You know, there, there are hardly any good, right? I mean, Voinov, I guess, who's gone now. There just are not a lot of good. I remember there were a lot of hopes for, for Orlov and Washington, and he hasn't really panned out to be a... Uh, a consistent guy but Zaitsev might be one of the best he pretty I mean I'm pretty sure he is one of the best Russian defensemen in the world I like how tough he is he's not the biggest guy in the world like he is he is like cold war no nonsense hard ass and I know you want to tell the story about <laughs> so I did a I did this story on the rookies before they were going to play uh the Pittsburgh Penguins and I just thought it would be like a quirky little thing to do to talk to every all seven rookies on the Leafs about Sidney Crosby and they were going to play him for the first time and all that so I tracked down all seven of them in the span of 24 hours which um it was good like uh you know like Marner and Connor Brown and uh Matthews had this story about how he was you know nine years old and he was at the game in in Phoenix when Crosby scored a goal as a rookie and put it top top corner and it made a big impression on him William Nylander talked about how his dad played in that playoff series where it went seven games, and there was the one game where Crosby and Ovechkin both had hat tricks, and so I got great stuff, but I talked to Zaitsev, and he was not impressed with the question. It was a very short interview. It was about, I don't know, a minute, and he looked at me like I was insane because why is this Why is this tall, skinny reporter asking me about uh, Sidney Crosby? But and then, and then apparently he brought it up when he talked to Jonas l- later. Well, so I went to do a story on the toughness that you talked about because there's something about him like he carries himself like if I could have if not if I had the choice in what my headline for my story would have been, which would not be allowed, it would have been Nikita Zaitsev doesn't give a you know what because that's how he seems to be. So I asked him like I was just asking him about coming over from the K, coming over to the NHL, you know, facing some good players, and eventually he brought up unprompted that a few days ago, this guy started asking him all these questions about Sidney Crosby. And he's like, I don't want to be answering these questions before a game. Why would I be answering these questions? He was very upset about it. Anyway, he just has like this, this like the Cold War attitude is kind of 
a perfect way to describe it. And I think that's what's struck me most about him. He just has this toughness about him. And he says that's because his answers were awesome. He, he just didn't care. He said, I'm not 17 years old. I've played against the best players in the world. I'm not a kid, basically, is what he said. And I think that's all make it like it all makes sense. Like he's not coming over here without any experience at, at the World Cup. To your point with Russia, he was their top defenseman. Like he was the guy they used the most. So I think all those factors have made him maybe more ready to play than your typical rookie defenseman. His upside, though, I was thinking today, like maybe he's like a three, maybe he's a two. Do you what? What do you think? Is he a four? Somewhere in that two to four range. Like I think we probably both agree Morgan Riley would be a two, and maybe Zaitsev's like a three four. Yeah, I'm thinking right now like a three. I mean, I just I haven't seen him make a lot of mistakes. And you think a guy coming over and playing in the league for the first time on small ice for the first time, and he stands out. <clears throat> he stands out with good body position and. Things like possession have been pretty good. You look at him away from Matt Hunwick. Him and Matt Hunwick was kind of a train wreck of a pair, but him away from Hunwick, he's been very, very good. And I think he's only going to get better. And I kind of wonder if he's like, I mean, not just to just go with Russian guys, but I, I think of guys that played for the Leafs before that I used to love watching, like Yuskevich or or Danny Markov. And like Yuskevich in particular had more offensive skills than I think he got credit for. He had a good shot and... You know, he was really good defensively. And you can see, like, there's good positioning there from Zaitsev. He's kind of like, he's like the kind of Russian defenseman we haven't really seen a lot of in the last 10, 12 years. And, you know, it's not, he's got some good offensive ability, but, and I like the stories that I've heard in the last couple of weeks about him training with Gary Roberts. I guess he came over, I, I don't have the time frame in front of me, but like five years ago, and Gary Roberts said, what are your goals in training with me? And Zaitsev have said two things. I want to gain four kilograms and I want to play in the NHL when I'm 25 years old. Well, right now he's 25 years old and he's in the NHL. So this has been his goal for a long time. Um, he wanted to play for the Leafs because he came over to Toronto and he trained with Roberts and, and apparently he's a great guy. I mean, we've had a hard time getting to know him because there's a language barrier and there's the give a crap barrier that he just, I mean, he doesn't really want to hang out and talk with us. I, I can tell, which is, which is fine. I mean, that's his prerogative, but uh, I think he could be one of, he could become a fan favorite. Like I could picture a scenario where like, say there, say he takes a slap shot to the face or something. Like, I'm not saying I want that to happen to him, but like I could see him like being like Matt Calvert for, uh, the other day where, where he did that and come back and score the winning goal. Like, I don't think Zaitsev would think anything of that. Well, a few points to that. Um, one, I don't know if you heard this. Um, so a couple days after I wrote my story about Zaitsev, I think Masters wanted to talk to him. I don't, I don't remember what for. But basically, uh, Zaitsev told the PR staff that he felt like garbage and he didn't want to do it. And that was the that was the expression he used, like felt like garbage. And I just think it he's just like very blunt to the point and to what you mentioned there. One of the things he told me as to being ready to play in the NHL, he said, like, I've been preparing for this for a while. Like mentally I've been in this frame of mind that I want to play in the NHL. So I think that helped him. I also thought it was really interesting. Mike Babcock said for the first five games, Zaitsev just told him this recently. 
that for the first five games, he had no idea what Mike Babcock was talking about. Like you can just imagine, like everything was just have been going over his head because like he plays in the World Cup for Russia. Babcock then he comes back to training camp. Babcock's still gone uh, with Canada. Babcock comes back. And it's just like everything must be just so fast. Like you have no idea what's going on. And I was talking to Connor Carrick about this. And he said, like, imagine if if it was vice versa. And like you went to Russia and like all of a sudden you don't know much Russian. The coach is saying all kinds of things. It would be really overwhelming. And I think we have to remember that with Zaitsev. Well, and you and I know how Babcock runs his practices, too. It's kind of like bang, bang, bang. And there's hardly any instruction. Like new players to the Leafs always say like, they they try to watch what other people are doing or try like it's there it's hard to follow because Babcock's trying to move everything so fast and doesn't say a lot and there's not a lot of explanation and we've heard the stories I, I've I've heard the stories of other European guys or North American guys going and playing in Russia and it's very much like that that they don't know what the hell's going on and they got to ask the other players around them so I think all things considered what what is he eighteen games into his into the season for Zaitsev I think he's been great and it'll be interesting to see I don't know what his next contract will look like but. You know, if they can get him signed for three years at three and a half million or something like that a year, I mean, I go go right ahead. I've seen enough. I want to see more of what he can do. To that point about Europeans, remember uh, last training camp, um, Richard Ponick basically has no idea like what's going on. Really had a rough time at training camp. That was it. Like he was gone to the Marlies, I think, before the season. And then they train him to Chicago, and like he looks like he's like an, he's an NHL player. He's not a great NHL player, but he's an NHL player. And you can see how like the intensity of Babcock can sometimes it's not like very rarely will work against them. And and I think we've seen that. It's a perfect segue actually, because this is what I wanted to talk about next. In terms of usage, like you and I have talked a lot about, you know, how he uses players, and and obviously Hunwick has been part of that conversation. He's been using Hunwick and Polak as a pair. Gardner and Carrick, I think, have looked good together and I think makes sense. But he kind of uses them as a third pairing. Do you think we'll eventually get to a point where coaches get away from this mindset? I need to have my, I don't know, types like Hunwick, like Polak, to go against better offensive players as opposed to using more skilled guys like Gardner and Carrick. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Like, I think it would make more sense to use them as your second pair, basically, where you use them against second lines. Do you think we'll get to that point, or what do you think? I think some teams are doing that already. You know, I think you see, you're seeing that around the league where, I mean, Gardner and Carrick's a good example. I mean, those are two guys that aren't that big, but they're... I was going to say, when we were talking about the trade bait kind of thing, I was thinking in the back of my mind, like, well, I wonder about Jake Gardner because they're paying him a little over $4 million. They're using him strictly as a third-pair guy. He's producing great results in terms of possession, and but it just doesn't seem like they see him as more than a third-pair guy because this team is desperate for defensemen. I think they should be playing him on the second pair. The fact that they don't want to, I don't know what that says. Like, I like if they, if they refuse to do that long term, I almost wonder if he has more value in a trade than as a third pairing guy making four million dollars. I wonder what it is. Like, there's something about him. It, it was the same with Randy Carlisle. It was the same with Ron Wilson. Like, he doesn't enamor himself to coaches. He doesn't think the game like super well. Like, he's not one of those guys you'd say has a great high hockey IQ, and yet statistically. It looks really good. Like I checked it today. I think he's at 
possession, Carrick, similar type of deal. I don't know. Maybe it's just something in in the style that he plays. He's not super physical. He's not super tough. Like I said, he doesn't think the game. Like, what do you think it is about him that doesn't enamor him to coaches? I think he just, there's like an unpredictability that they don't like about what he does. Sometimes he makes decisions that they don't agree with. I mean, that was clearly the case with, with Randy Carlisle. But, but like, when the alternative is Hunwick and Polak as your second pair going up against another team's second, like, it's, I don't know. Like, it seems like such a no-brainer, doesn't it? Or at least, and they, they've had a, a tough time because Marincin has not had a very good year. He's really struggled. He looks like he's nervous or uncertain with the puck. I think a lot more. He looks like the Marincin of the first half of last year, and then he had a good second half, and then he hasn't been able to bring that back. And Corrado, they haven't wanted to play it. I thought Corrado looked fine in that game against Pittsburgh. So they're in this weird situation where they're using probably the two, well, I think the two weakest defensemen in an eight-man rotation as their 3-4. And that's just, they're going to get killed some nights with that there. I mean, Polak should be your six or seven. He should not be. like It's like Hunwick is the three and Polak is the four right now, which is just death. I think what happens sometimes with coaches is, like I try to put myself in their shoes. I feel like they think, and if I'm thinking for Mike Babcock, like he would think I can trust those guys more. Like they've played in the league. They're tough. They're physical. Like they're going to go to battle. I feel like they have a better chance of, surviving whereas guys like Gardner and Carrick they're more suave it doesn't look as like it it doesn't compute kind of with what you used to think of as being a good defensive defenseman now it it really is more important just to get the puck and get the hell out of the defensive zone whereas before it's like defensive defensemen were that right like it was the guys who threw the big hits and were physical and were tough and I feel like it's just like a mindset that maybe the game has to shake do you did you see that comment on, you probably didn't, on Twitter, 67 Sound was talking about Babcock and uh, 67 Sound, for people who don't know, I, I call him the anonymous voice of reason for the uh, uh, for the Leafs, for the Leafs fans. Um, he's got a big following on Twitter. He said of Babcock that he's a great tactical coach, but he's not the greatest usage coach in that he has these kind of weird blind spots where he doesn't like Peter Holland. He doesn't like Richard Ponick. He likes Ben Smith. He doesn't like Frank Corrado. He doesn't like Connor Carrick or Jake Gardner. He likes Matt Hunwick. And he he wants these kind of... So I don't know. I mean, if you're working with that limitation, Babcock brings a lot of really good things. I don't think he's above criticism, though. And I think one of the criticisms is that he leans a little bit too heavily on those guys. And so do you have to try and build the roster around your coach then? Like if, if you're looking at bringing in a top four defenseman, do you have to find one that is not only a good possession D that can do the other things, but also has those gritty elements that he can trust? Like, do you have to find like a, like a BX in his prime kind of like not BX now, but like, like that kind of player, right? Like a guy that can kind of do multiple elements. I thought Truba might've been a good fit, but obviously they didn't have what Winnipeg wanted. Well, and I think that's kind of like the the pull and push between like a GM and a coach. And the coach in this situation just has so much power. Like he's such a powerful voice. 
I would think, and I have no way to know this for sure, but I would think he is the reason they sign Matt Martin. Like He is the reason they bring in that type. He's the reason that Ben Smith is not only on the team, but playing regularly. Like Those are the kind of guys coaches generally like like especially coaches like Babcock like you said who kind of I don't know he he likes like really competitive guys like you ask people in Detroit his third favorite player maybe his first favorite player would have been like Luke Glendening or or Dan Cleary like guys who are just like hard would be the word that he describes it and it's kind of a blind spot and it's I don't know it's going to be interesting once Lou Lamorello his contract is done assuming he leaves, which we don't know, what happens? Like, who they get that can be kind of that force to kind of go against Babcock when, you know, he pushes too hard for guys like this. Because the one thing you had in Detroit is you had a powerful general manager who could say no or yes or, you know what I mean? Like, I think that's that's really gets to the nuts and bolts of, like, the GM-coach relationship. And I'm sure some people are listening to this and saying, you know, whatever, the pencil necks, as they 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 called you on uh, on overdrive. The pencil necks are against grit, and it's like we're not against grit. Like you know, there are gritty guys on the Leafs that get results that we're happy with. You know, if Patrice Bergeron's a gritty player and a great player, and we'll praise him every day for being that. Or Zaitsev, we're talking about how how tough Zaitsev is, and I think that that helps him. I think that helps his results. The thing I don't like is is favoring grit when that's all there is. I mean, maybe it's going too far to say that. But like a guy like Ben Smith, it seems like I saw him today in the dressing room. Like that guy is like, he is a physical specimen. Ben Smith is ripped. He looks like he's like a professional wrestler or something like that. And Matt Hunwick's really, really, like it seems like Babcock, the physical fitness, the try hard, all those kinds of things that he over-prioritizes it. Well, we saw that obviously at points in the previous management regime where you're overvaluing character and leadership and intangibles, which those things matter. Like we're not saying that they don't matter, but they matter to a point. And if you're prioritizing them over other things, when you're using, you know, Ben Smith over Peter Holland or you're using Matt Martin over, I don't know, player X with the Marlies, who probably should like the, the Matt Martin thing anyway kind of ties into what we want to talk about to kind of close us out is Josh Levo's weird situation. I don't have a good sense of like what's what the deal is. He was on the conditioning assignment. What's kind of your impression of that whole situation? And that kind of ties back in when you have a contract like Martin's locked in. I guess what they're thinking, okay, this is what I think they're thinking with Levo is that eventually a forward is going to get hurt and they're going to need these other guys like Peter Holland and and Levo and they're going to want to have two extra forwards. It hasn't happened yet. They haven't had a forward injury 18 games into the year, which is very unusual in the NHL. I think that their plan was with all this conditioning stint and all this stuff and he, he played, ended up playing five games for the Marlies. Somehow they got an extension on the conditioning stint, which is very unusual. So he played more than he was supposed to. He was down there longer than 14 days. Um, and for the, so we go to practice today and they say, Levo's not going to talk to the media, which is weird because why wouldn't he talk to the media about whatever's going on? And then afterwards, Babcock says, oh, you know, he's not ready yet. He's going to practice with us, but he's, and he wouldn't tell us what his designation is on the roster, but the Leafs essentially are at a 24 player roster right now. Like they're over the limit, but 
they're saying that Levo is not ready to come back, but he just played five games for the Marlies. He had no points in those games. It's so strange. Like, if I am Levo's agent, I would think about like asking the league to like look into this or something. Except Levo probably wants to stay in the NHL and like wants to. And who knows? Like Ben Smith could break his foot against Carolina on Tuesday or or whatever. Like who who knows what's going to happen? But I think that that this is kind of what they were thinking. But the the counter to that that I would say is that okay, so say someone gets hurt, just call up Colin Greening or like like they've got guys that they can take out of the Marlies and not have to sacrifice youth. It's almost like by keeping Corrado and and Levo and barely playing them, you're sacrificing youth. Like, wouldn't Levo be better off playing all the time with the Marlies? I I don't know. It's it's a weird situation. Well, and wouldn't you be better off having Seth? Griffith whose name is really hard to say like as opposed to I don't know like that that whole situation reminded me a bit of the McLaren or thing where you keep those guys and and I mean like he's probably just a depth NHLer and that's fine but like that's for what for what he makes I don't know there's some value to it like Matt Martin like I said zero goals two points uh a negative possession wise like I it just doesn't make a lot of sense, but they've done some weird things. Like the the whole uh, Brandon Prust situation is super weird, and I don't think it's super appropriate. Like to have this guy practicing with the team, basically waiting for a, uh, injuries to get a chance. Kari Ramo is weird. I I don't. I'm not a big fan of some of these pull the curtain over you type of moves that they do, which are very Lou. I was going to say, yeah, I'm pretty sure this is all Lou Lamorello doing weird things for, I don't know. It's, it's, it's so like, yeah, like today it's, you know, we're at practice, we're waiting. We want an update on Levo. I thought maybe he was going to go on waivers today. I mean, that's what would have made sense. They said he wouldn't talk to us, but no, that wasn't it. It was some weird thing we've never seen before. So I don't know. It's that fourth line is bad. That fourth line has been bad. I mean, they've had a, I can't remember which game it was. They had one game recently where they played well. But it's just, it's not good enough. They need more talent there. And I almost wonder, like, I think Ben Smith might be okay if he had a really good winger there, like a skilled winger that he could get the puck to. Like, I actually thought that Seth Griffith looked pretty good on that fourth line. I thought that he made some plays and they had some chances and like, nope, see you later. So I I don't know. Well, at least you'd get like maybe a goal here or there. They're not getting like, I don't think, Sashnikov might have one goal, maybe two goals. Like, you're not getting anything out of that line. It's a sink on your puck possession. They get hemmed in for the most part. They've been okay some nights. Anyway, um, anything else you want to mention before we go? No? You're nodding your head? Okay. Frederick Anderson. Yeah, he's, uh, I think so now he is 7-3, and I think, in November. I think his save percentage is above 930. So he has turned it around. We will keep monitoring that situation. So we'll be back in a couple weeks. Thanks, James. Talking on-